And the first thing we learn about unity is in verses 1 to 3, and that is that it's preserved by our daily walk. When we walk worthy of our calling in humility and meekness and patience and love, we are being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And so the basics of unity is our lifestyle, it's our walk, it's our Christ-like character. The second thing we learn about unity is in verses 4 to 6, and that is it's based on the unity of God. The unity that God is, one Father, one Lord, one Spirit, and the unity that God has established, one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism. The third thing we learn about unity is in verses 7 to 11 that we want to look at this morning, and that is that it's enriched by the diversity of our gifts. And there's an obvious transition between verses 6 and 7. In verses 4 to 6, Paul uses the word one seven times. In verse 6 alone, he uses the word all four times. And then when he comes to verse 7, he says, but to each one of you. And the contrast is very obvious. Verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but to each one of you. And so Paul moves from the unity of the church to the diversity of the church. He moves from the whole to the individual. And that tells me a couple things right off. It tells me that unity isn't impersonal. We are not merged into a solid, undifferentiated mass in the body of Christ. We do not lose our identity. We, as the church, are the body of Christ, but we are individual members in it. We, as the church, are the temple of God, but we are individual stones in that temple. And God cares about the one body, but He also cares about each one of us in the body. And so this unity is not impersonal. The second thing we can say about it is that this unity isn't uniformity. Our unity is not based on the fact that we are exact replicas of each other. And some Christian groups try to do that. They get everyone to dress the same, cut their hair the same, look the same, speak the same, and they think by doing so, they are producing unity. But that is not unity. That is uniformity. You see, God has designed the body of Christ to have unity and diversity. We were not mass-produced in some celestial factory. We are not clones in the body of Christ. We are not assembly line productions. And when when Paul comes to verse 7 and he says, each one of us, he is not shattering the unity, he is actually reinforcing it. Because though our character is the same... Christ-like, our function is to be unique. And that uniqueness actually enhances our unity in the body of Christ. You say, well, how does that work? Look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given. Now, the word grace here is not the grace of salvation. Paul has already spoken about that back in chapter 2 and verse 8. He says, for by grace are you saved. This is a grace that is given to each one of us who is already in the body of Christ. And so this is a grace that comes after saving grace. You say, well, what grace is it that we receive after saving faith? Well, Paul spoke about that earlier as well. If you turn back to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, he uses this word there in the same way. He says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. Now, what grace is that? That's the grace he mentions in verse 7, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. 
See, Paul is talking about grace in the sense that it's the gift that he was given. In Paul's case, it was the gift of apostle, which he goes on at the end of verse 8 to explain was his special ministry as apostle to the Gentiles. So in chapter 4 and verse 7, when Paul says to each one of us grace was given, he's talking about spiritual gifts. And that's very clear from the context because at the end of verse 8, you'll notice he says he gave gifts to men. And in verse 11, he says he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and so on. And so by grace, God has given all of us the gift of eternal life. But beyond that, he has given each one of us a spiritual gift. Now, a spiritual gift is a God-given capacity for service in the body of Christ. And just so we're talking about the same thing, let me just say a few things about spiritual gifts at the outset. Number one, every Christian has been given a spiritual gift. When Paul says in verse 7, each one of us, he's not leaving anybody out. We all have been given, we each have been given a spiritual gift. Secondly, it's something that you did not possess before you were Christian. You were given this grace as you came into the body of Christ. You were given your spiritual gift upon entry into the body of Christ. And so a spiritual gift is not the same as a natural talent. It's something else. It's something beyond that God has added to you. Thirdly, it's not a basis for pride. Because your spiritual gift is not the product of your skill or your ingenuity. It's a gift. It's always amazing to me the way kids respond at Christmas time because you give them gifts and they open their gifts and one of the first things they want to do after they open their gifts is brag to their friends about all the things they got as if they did something to get those gifts. I guess that maybe that's the Santa Claus syndrome that he's checking you twice, seeing if you're naughty or nice, so they think they earned them. But Paul is very careful to tell us that these are gifts of grace which means that we didn't do anything to deserve them. The only thing we deserve from God is judgment for our sins. And we not only get salvation, but we are given a spiritual gift. And there's no room for boasting in that. Fourth thing, the purpose of your spiritual gift is to serve others. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. God has given me a gift, but my gift is not for me. My gift is for others. I'm to use it in serving others, in building up the body of Christ. And then the fifth thing I'd like to say, and the final thing I'd like to say in general about spiritual gifts, is that no two gifts are exactly alike. And I think that's spelled out at the end of verse 7. He says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, the word measure indicates that it's carefully determined that Christ measures out the gift that he gives to each one of us. And I think we see that in evidence by the fact that even those of us who have the same gift are not exactly the same. You can listen to two people who have the gift of teacher teach the same passage of scripture and you will get and learn different things from each because there's uniqueness in the giftedness of individuals. And, of course, the analogy is of a physical body, and we see that in, in terms of our physical body because though you have sometimes members that are the same in the body, they're actually unique. You have two feet, but if you measure them carefully, you'll find that one is a little larger than the other. 
If you examine your face, you'll find that one side of your face is a little different from the other side because there are differences in the body of Christ. We have two hands. One is more dexterous than the other. And so even those that are the same are unique. And that really is spelled out to us by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'd like you just to take a moment and look over there for a reference. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul expands on this idea beginning in verse 4. He says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Notice, there's the same Spirit, same Lord, same God. But there are varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries, and varieties of effects. Now we already said that the word gift means a God-given capacity for ministry in the body of Christ. The second word... Varieties of ministries or varieties of service has to do with the sphere in which a gift is performed. Among a certain people, a group of people, or among a, a certain geographical area. Along with the gift that God has given me, He has also given me a sphere of ministry to operate in. I think we see an example of that, for instance, in John chapter 21. When Jesus spoke to Peter, and Peter told him three times that he loved him, And Jesus said three times to Peter, feed my sheep. Now, Peter was an apostle like the others, but Jesus gave him a special sphere of ministering to the body of Christ. And I think that's evident when we find in Peter's writings in 1 Peter chapter 5 that he says, I am your fellow elder who am shepherding the flock of God. God gave him a special sphere. And in relation to that in John chapter 21, we find that Jesus also told him that 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 sphere was going to include his being martyred for Christ. And you remember Peter said, well, what about John? And Jesus says, you don't worry about John, you follow me. You see, he gives us, along with our gift, a sphere of ministry for that gift, and he's still doing that today. Some of us are called to teach Christians, others are called to reach out to non-believers. Some train youth, Others minister to older people. Some work with women. Others work with men. Some minister at home. Others go across the ocean. Some minister to Jews. Others minister to Gentiles. Peter and Paul were the classic examples of that. They were both given the gift of apostle. But Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Varieties of ministries. And then he says in verse 6, there are varieties of effects or varieties of workings. And the Greek word there is literally energizing. God gives us a gift. He gives us a sphere of ministry. He also gives us a degree of power by which that gift is manifest, which displays itself in the results that come from that gift. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11, Jesus said that no one born of women was greater than John the Baptist. And John was a prophet. Do you know what's interesting about John? John... Chapter 10 and verse 41 tells us that John the Baptist never performed a miracle in his entire ministry. That's interesting. He was a prophet, just like Elijah in the Old Testament. Elijah did all kinds of miracles, called fire out of heaven, even raised people from the dead. John, Jesus says, was greater than him. But John never performed a miracle. Because with our gift, there are different energizings. God empowers us us in different ways. So even if you have the same gift as someone else, that doesn't mean you have the same equipping or empowering or energizing that God has given that person. So everyone with the gift of evangelist is not going to have the same results as Billy Graham. 
Everyone with the gift of teacher is not going to have an audience the size of John MacArthur. But you see, your responsibility is not to produce results. Your responsibility is to be faithful in using the, the gift that God has given you. And the results are determined by God. And so for each of us, God has measured out a gift, He's assigned a sphere of ministry, and He's just determined an effect so that no two, two gifts are exactly alike. And the fact that each one of us has a gift that Christ has uniquely measured out to us emphasizes our diversity. But you see, that diversity actually enhances our unity. Because when we realize that we're each one unique, we realize that we need each other. It's just like the body of Christ. In the, body, or in the physical body, you have all kinds of members that are unique, but they work together in unity sometimes. In fact, Paul used that analogy in 1 Corinthians 12, 21, and he said, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. We have been gifted. You see, no Christian has been given all the gifts. No Christian can go out and do it all by himself. We have each been given gifts, and we are dependent upon each other to function in the body of Christ. On the other hand, no Christian can be a spectator either. No Christian can say, I'm not going to do anything. Because, you see, you are uniquely gifted. And the parts in the body of Christ are not interchangeable. And your gift is unique, and we need it in the body of Christ. Have you ever gotten a gift at Christmas or on your birthday that you didn't need? And you didn't know how to tell the person you didn't need it? When I get those, I stick them in a drawer. And I leave them there until it's safe to put them in a garage sale. But see, God never gives us such gifts. You don't get the wrong gift from God. And you never get too much and you never get too little. Every one of His gifts is exactly what we need to fulfill the work He's given us. And so when you are not doing your work, the body of Christ suffers to that same degree. Because God doesn't have replacement players. God has not gifted anyone else with the uniqueness He has gifted you with or the work and ministry He has called you to. And so we are each individually gifted. Christ has measured out a gift to each one of us. And Paul tells us that in verse 7, and then he moves on in verses 8 to 10 to tell us how Christ got the right to give us those gifts. Notice verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, that's a quote from Psalm 68. And it's a picture of God coming down and defeating his enemies, and then ascending up Mount Zion with his captives in tow, and then distributing gifts to his people. It was a common picture in ancient times, because when a king would go to warfare and win... He would come back to his capital city and usually ride in on a white horse. Behind him would be the defeated king in chains along with many of his military leaders. He would make a public display of his enemy as he would ride into town. And then he would take the spoils that he'd won in battle and he would distribute them to the people of his kingdom. That's the message of Psalm 68. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul applies it to Christ. He won the victory at the cross. He ascended into heaven and he has 
shared the spoils with us, if you like. He has given us gifts. You say, well, what does he mean when he says in verse 8, he led captive a host of captives? Who are the captives that Christ led captive? Well, there's a commentary on that in in Colossians chapter 2. If you just turn over a couple books to Colossians chapter 2, we read about it in verse 15. He says in verse 14 how that God nailed our certificate of debt to the cross of Christ. And then he goes on in verse 15 and says, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, if you check that phrase, rulers and authorities, you'll find that it's a reference to angelic beings, particularly fallen angelic beings. And so here we're told who the captives are that Christ led captive. They are Satan and his host. And so the picture is very clear here. Jesus comes in triumph, ascends into heaven. Behind him in chains are, the Satan, are Satan and his host of demons. And he comes and he distributes gifts to his people. And then having said that in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8, he now gives us a little commentary on Psalm 68 and verses 9 and 10. He asks a question. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? Now that's a simple question. Paul says if it says he ascended, then he must have first of all descended. And when did God descend? Well, he descended in the person of Christ. In fact, Christ himself said that in John chapter 3 and verse 13. He said, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And that's the point Paul is making because he reiterates it in verse 10. He says, he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, why does Paul bring this up? I think for a couple reasons. Number one, he wants to show us that Jesus is God. And so he says, if you notice in verse 10, he who descended is himself also he who ascended. The same one spoken about in Psalm 68 who ascended into heaven as God is God and the one who descended is God as well. And so the emphasis here is on the deity of Christ. He is God. But I think there's a second reason why he says that. And that is he wants to show us the principle of exaltation. He descended out of heaven, but if you'll notice the end of verse 10, he ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Because he descended, he actually ascended higher than he was before. And Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 2 as well. It says because Jesus humbled himself and went to the death on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Because he descended, he exalted higher than he ever was before. We use the expression, what goes up must come down, but in the kingdom of God, what goes down must come up. Jesus humbled himself, and therefore he is exalted. And I think Paul brings this up because, number one, he wants to encourage us to walk in humility as he exhorted us to in verse 2, realizing that the result of our humble walk will be exaltation, just as it was with Christ. But secondly, he wants to remind us that the victory from which we get the spoils was won at the cross. 
To conquer death, Jesus had to die. And I think that's captured in the phrase at the end of verse 9, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now, a lot of people go off on tangents trying to figure out what that means. I think it simply means he descended as far as you can go. And I think it's synonymous with what we read in in Philippians chapter 2 when it says that Christ was obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. He went as low as he could go to hang in shame on the cross of Calvary in humility so that he might ascend to the highest height of exaltation. Which brings us to verse 11, where Paul lists some of the gifts Christ has given. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. First gift is apostles. Now, in the broadest sense, every Christian is an apostle because the word apostle means sent ones. We have all been sent as ambassadors of Christ, as witnesses of Christ. But that's not the way Paul is using the word here because he uses it in a restricted sense, saying in verse 11, he gave some as apostles. So this is a limited gift. This word is also used in Scripture of apostles of the churches. Paul uses that phrase in 2 Corinthians 8.23. These were messengers who were sent out by a local church as missionaries or to fulfill a certain purpose. Epaphroditus is referred to this way by Paul in Philippians 2.25, where he says, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. That word messenger is the Greek word for apostle. Epaphroditus was an apostle of the church at Philippi who came to minister to Paul. But there's a third way that this word is used, and that is as apostles of Christ. And that would include a very small group which would be the twelve, plus Matthias in Acts chapter 1, and plus the apostle Paul. Qualifications for an apostle were very simple. Number one, you had to be chosen by Christ himself. And that's why in Galatians 1.1, Paul says, I'm an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He was appointed an apostle by Jesus Christ. That's the first qualification. Second qualification is they had to be an eyewitness of the risen Christ. And that's spelled out in Acts 1.22. And Paul reiterates that later in 1 Corinthians 9.1 by saying, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? That was a qualification. And then the third qualification was their apostleship had to be attested by miraculous signs. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.12, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And so here when Paul mentions the gift of apostle, he's talking about these apostles of Christ. I think that's also evident by the fact that the only three times he uses this term in the book of Ephesians, he's always referring to this group. He said in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1, I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. In chapter 2 verse 20, he said the apostles are the foundation the church is built upon. And in chapter 3 verse 5, he said the apostles are the ones to whom God revealed his truth. And so... One of the gifts he talks about is the gift of apostle. You say, well, are there any apostles today? No. And I'll tell you why I think that. Number one, because the original apostles, as eyewitnesses of the historic risen Christ, by that very job description, could have no successors. 
Their job was to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ. They fulfilled that job in the first century. Secondly, when the twelve died, we don't find that they were replaced. Now, Judas was replaced because he betrayed the Lord in Acts chapter 1. But a little later in Acts, Acts chapter 12 and verse 1, you'll find that James was killed. You don't find after that that he was replaced because there was no succession. And thirdly, we really don't need apostles today because their authority, the apostles' doctrine, is recorded for us in the New Testament. And so, essentially, this is the apostolic succession. Second gift he mentions is prophets. Now, the first thing we think about when we think of prophets is the idea of someone predicting the future, someone telling you what's going to happen five years from now. And that's certainly captured in this word because the word literally means to speak before. And it can mean to speak before in time, and it's used that way in Scripture. For instance, in Acts chapter 11, verse 27, we read about an individual named Agabus who was a prophet who foretold that there would be a worldwide famine. We run into the same Agabus in Acts chapter 21, predicting that Paul, if he went to Jerusalem, would be bound by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles. That's the gift of prophecy, to speak before in time. But the word also means to speak before an audience. And that's the primary way it's used in Scripture. In fact, that's the classic Hebrew idea behind this word. And, and in Exodus chapter 7 and verse 1, here's what the Lord said to Moses. I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You speak to Aaron, and Aaron speaks to Pharaoh. Now, there's the definition of a prophet. A prophet is a mouthpiece for God. God speaks to the prophet. The prophet speaks to man. He foretells the word of God. Sometimes in Scripture, that was new revelation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 29 and 30, it talks about the fact in the local church at that time, sometimes God would give a revelation to a prophet and he would stand up and share. Now, that was especially important in the early church because they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have sword drills in the New Testament. So they were dependent on a letter like Ephesians from the Apostle Paul or they were dependent upon those with the gift of prophecy in their midst to stand up and foretell, foretell the word of God. Sometimes that was new revelation. Often it was not. Often it was just speaking forth revelation that had already been given. An example of that is in Acts chapter 15 and verse 32. At the city of Antioch, we read that Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. They weren't declaring anything new. They were encouraging and strengthening the brethren with already established truth. And what I like about that verse is it, they said, it says they gave a lengthy message. And that's uh, scriptural precedence for that. Are there prophets today? Certainly not in the sense of revealing new revelation from God. If someone has been sent by God saying, thus says the Lord, then we need to write that down in Scripture. Because that needs to be for the whole church to listen to and obey. You see, God is not adding to His Word today. His Word is complete. And that's why this aspect of the prophet is foundational, as we read in Ephesians 2.20. It says, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Next gift is evangelists. 
Someone has described evangelists as a guy with 15 sermons and 15 suits. The word means a messenger of good news. And of course, all of us as Christians are to be messengers of good news, but certain Christians are given the gift of evangelist. They are given a special capacity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can diagnose a person's spiritual condition. They can probe the conscience. They can answer objections. They can take the gospel and make it very clear. They can lead a person to make a decision of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this word evangelist, in its noun form as we see it here, is only used two other times in the New Testament. One time it's used in Acts 21.8 where it says Philip was the evangelist. And Philip is the only example in Scripture we have of an evangelist. And we can learn a lot from him because Philip traveled around from city to city and preached to groups of people, but he also interacted with individuals as he did with the Ethiopian eunuch when he led him to the Lord. But Philip didn't travel all the time because we also read about him that he had a house in Caesarea and he had time to raise four daughters. He was an evangelist. The other time this word is used is in 2 Timothy 4, 5, where Paul says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Now, I assume from that that Timothy did not have the gift. But Paul said, you do the work anyway, which is the exhortation we all have. Whether we have this gift or not, we have the responsibility to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fourth gift is pastors. And some have assumed at the end of verse 11 that this gift, pastors and teachers, is connected because of the construction here. And the construction is, in verse 11, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Personally, I don't take it that way because if you look in other places in Scripture like 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, we find that teacher is listed as a separate gift. And so I see no reason to connect them here. Pastor is one gift. The word pastor means to shepherd It's a person who tends the sheep, who cares for the spiritual needs of those in the flock of Christ, who gives counsel, correction, encouragement, consolation. It's closely related to the work of elders. However, pastor is a gift. Elder is a position in the local church. And then the fifth gift he mentions here, and the final one in verse 11, is teachers. Some are divinely empowered to explain what the Bible says. They can interpret what it means and they can apply it to our hearts and our consciences. The teacher is able to not only open the Word of God, but he's able to open our hearts to receive God's truth. I've said it before, the goal of a teacher is not for you to say, my, how smart he is. The goal for a teacher is for you to say, I understand that. It's like the lady who went away from the service saying, my, that pastor's smart. Somebody asked her why, and she said, because I didn't understand a word he said. That's not what a teacher does. A teacher takes the Word of God and he makes it simple so that you can understand it, so that you go away saying, I think I can actually take that and share it with someone else. That's what a teacher does. And that's a gift. See, a person can be a teacher by profession and know all the skills of teaching from education and not be able to take the Word of God and open it and proclaim it and teach it because that's a gift that God gives. Now, in closing this morning, 
I want to tell you how you can discover your gift. Now, a lot of people ask me this, and I don't always have a good answer, but this morning I'm going to give you three steps to discerning, discovering what your spiritual gift is. And, and I, what I've done this morning is parallel that with natural talents. Because how is it that you discovered your natural talents? How is it you, you discovered you could play the piano or draw or sing? Let me give you three steps. Number one, it probably began with some kind of interest. You simply liked what you were talented in. And you probably hung around people who did that same thing. And you watched them and you observed them and you picked up little tips of the finer point from watching. Now, somewhere in the Christian circles, we've gotten the idea that what God wants you to do is always unpleasant. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, in Psalm 37, 4, it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you what? The desires of your heart. And so the spiritual gift Christ has given to you ought to be one of the desires of your heart. Now, that's conditional. You first have to delight yourself in the Lord. If you're walking in the flesh, you're probably not going to find your spiritual gift real desirable. But if you're walking in the Spirit, you're going to find that spiritual gift to be attractive. You're going to find yourself attracted to that gift. In fact, the exercise of your spiritual gift should always be something that's satisfying and enjoyable. Now, be careful with that. I didn't say it was always comfortable, but it's satisfying. I think of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He was exercising his gift of preaching, and they stoned him to death. But it's interesting. If you read that passage, it says they looked at him, and he died with a face like an angel which tells me that he was satisfied doing the will of God even as he was stoned to death. So the first thing is it ought to be something that you're attracted to. Second thing is that you ought to watch for improvement and development. Are you getting better as you go along? Are you getting more competent? Gifts like talents need to be exercised, and that's why Paul exhorted Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6 to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. Stir it up, use it because it needs to be developed. And as your skill develops, the spiritual blessing it brings ought to increasingly develop as well. You should be finding more and more opportunities and ways to minister in your gift. And so it ought to develop. That's the second thing. The third thing and the final test is do others recognize this gift in you? One of the most helpful ways you can minister to your brothers and sisters is to help them discover their spiritual gifts. Because others may see a gift in you that you'll find it hard to discover. In fact, I think it's much better for others to tell you what your gift is than for you to lay pretentious claims to something that isn't your gift. And I've run into a lot of people like that. Like the guy who thought he had the gift of preaching, but no one else seemed to have the gift of listening. Your spiritual gift should be one of the desires of your heart. You should be attracted to it. It ought to be something that's developing that you see evidence of growth in, that you're becoming more competent in, and others ought to be coming around and saying, yeah, that's your spiritual gift. They ought to be confirming that. Now, the reason I stress that is because next week, 
we're going to see just how important each one of our spiritual gifts is in the function and growth of the body of Christ. And so it's important that we begin to work on discovering ours and using ours in the body of Christ.